You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. St. Paul is one of my heroes. I love that man. I think about it for a minute. He was an ambassador for Jesus Christ to the Roman world, the whole Mediterranean world. And he was an expert on first century Mediterranean prisons. Uh, he was in so many of them. Uh, uh, he started out, remember when he first went to Europe, he was uh, put in prison after being beaten with rods because of a mob that uh, uh, said that he and Sylvanius were disturbing the peace. And so he was beaten with rods, put into a prison for only one day, and, and an earthquake happened that night. But one good thing that came out of that is a jailer in that prison became a believer. And that may have been one of the early believers in the Philippian church. Then he was in prison for two years in Roman custody in Jerusalem and then down at Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast. Two years captive. And that's a bad captivity because he was not able to write any letters. No one was able to get through to him or meet with him or talk to him. And he was incognito two years. And then he became sort of bored with that imprisonment. And then he, he was a Roman citizen. So, so since he was under charges, he appealed to Caesar, appealed to Rome. And so they put him on a prison ship. And then he was on a prison ship for about 40 days. And then a northeaster storm hit the Mediterranean. And his ship uh, fell apart at sea and, com- and completely disintegrated, uh, fortunately, near an island, Malta. And so Paul and everybody on the ship was able to get ashore. So that's another harrowing experience. Then he was brought again by prison ship to Rome. And that imprisonment was a fatal imprisonment. He never got out of that imprisonment. And that's where he is uh, when he writes uh, some letters that we call the prison letters, the prison epistles. And that's one good thing. He was able to write letters there. So he wrote letters to people, some of the young men that he had been training, Timothy and Titus, and then a man named Philemon about a runaway slave that Paul had, had befriended in prison that he once wanted to set free. And then to three churches. He wrote to the Ephesians, that's the great Ephesian letter. He wrote to the Colossians, that's the great Colossian letter. And the best letter of all, in my opinion, he wrote to that little church in Philippi, the Philippian letter. And it, it happens to be the last letter Paul wrote to a church. The last letter was Second Timothy that he wrote to a young friend. But the last letter to a church was the Philippian letter. I love that letter. I think it's a high watermark in all of Paul's writing. The Philippians are very worried about him. And they love him very much. Because... Uh, when he was finally put in the Roman prison, they sent a young missionary up to take care of him and to watch him. That was often done with prisoners. If they were wealthy enough, they could have people would come in and kind of watch out for them. Well, he wasn't wealthy enough to have that happen, but the church sent this missionary, a young man named Epaphroditus. And he was there to kind of guard and watch and maybe care for, bring food and stuff like that. Who knows what, uh, but to be there for Paul. And then he got sick. And we're not happy that because Epaphroditus was a very young man, but he got sick and had to be sent home to go back to Philippi. The good thing about 
is that Paul sent a letter with him. And that letter he sent with them to the Philippians is the Philippian letter. That letter has a, an absolutely amazing chapter in it. And if you want to take one of the Pew Bibles, because I'm going to do an exposition now of an amazing chapter in that letter. And you can open to page 955 and find the fourth chapter of Philippians. I would like to draw your attention to a great chapter. It's a chapter in which Paul is trying to help these folks not to be worried about him. But it's more than that. He has something else up his sleeve, something else he wants to work with. He wants to help them keep their minds clear and to keep their sanity in the midst of this, the turbulence of what was happening in the Roman world when he wrote that letter. He writes the letter during the Nero emperor period, probably after the fire of Rome, 64 AD, because after the fire of Rome, the persecution of believers was quite severe. We know from 2 Timothy that Paul says three times I was spared from the lions because that's how probably Paul was executed, was being thrown to the lions by Nero because Nero did this to entertain the crowds because he was blaming the Christians for the fire of Rome. And we know that from Tacitus. So it was a very stressful time. And the Philippians were probably very worried about this man, especially now that Epaphroditus has come back. Who's going to watch out for Paul now? And so he writes this letter. And the fourth chapter is vintage. It's vintage Paul. Here, let's take a look at it. It's, let's start with verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness. It's interesting he'd use this word. It's the Greek word epikos. It's one of the love vocabulary words in the New Testament. It's sometimes translated kindness. Sometimes it's translated gentleness. Sometimes forbearance. And sometimes moderation. And sometimes gentleness, right like here. It's it is a mellow word. It's very interesting. It's sort of a, a calming word. It's not an agitated, agitated word. It's not like, let your zeal be known. After all, it's a very stressful time. Maybe that's what you should say. Let your zeal be known and so that we can see some action around here. He doesn't say that. No, he says, let your moderation be known to all people. Let your mellowness be known. Your your restraint be known. Your, that's what this word means. Your, your kindness, your gentleness be known to all people. The Lord is nearby. The Lord is nearby. The Lord is near. Maybe now that's why you can be mellow if you, if you know the Lord's nearby. If you're a Chronicle of Narnia fan, you know that uh, C.S. Lewis says that the lion, the great golden lion Aslan is as big as the lions in Trafalgar Square. If you've been to Trafalgar Square in London, those lions are so big, four of them, that sometimes 40 or 50 children are on the back of those lions. Well, imagine when Susan and Lucy got to ride on Aslan's back. What would they be frightened of now? If Aslan is nearby, what are you worried about? And in a way, that's what Paul is doing here. He is saying, let everyone know that you're calm, unflappable. The Lord is nearby. The Lord is nearby. And then he invites them to pray. Notice, following that. Uh, the Lord is nearby. Do not worry. See, they're very worried. So do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer. And you know we're going to get all the prayer vocabulary here now in one sentence. By prayer 
and supplication, which means that's the word for intercession or to think with God. It's the thinking word. Supplication with thanksgiving. That's the praise word. Let your requests, there's another prayer word, be made known to God. They have a lot of concerns about Paul. Paul says, okay, bring them all to the Lord. That will calm you for sure. Bring all your prayer requests to the Lord. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, wow, will guard, and that's the actual word that's used, like a soldier, will guard. Have you ever thought of peace as your guard? Peace is the guard. Not a weapon, but peace. And this peace that passes all understanding will guard your hearts, but he's not finished, and your minds. Now, that's a clue to what this, this chapter is going to really be about. He wants to work with their minds as well as their hearts. It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Then following this prayer, he invites them to meditate. You know, the Christian, the Judeo-Christian tradition has meditation tradition. Some people aren't aware of that. Uh, meditation is not the empty garden type of meditation like you see in many, uh, many religious movements with the empty garden uh, or the empty field. No, no. Uh, where you say a word over and over again to clear your head of any thoughts at all. Our Lord warned against that. He said, don't empty a house of all spirits because if you empty it, then the evil spirits will come in the side doors. Rather, fill the house with something you care about. So that's the meditation tradition that's the Judeo-Christian meditation tradition you see in the Psalms. Our tradition is to focus your mind on things that are true in the face of things that are stressful. And that's exactly what Paul now does. Finally, brothers and sisters, beloved, whatever is true, Paul likes lists, so you're going to get a list now. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. He uses a very strong word for think now. It's the Greek word logisthai. We get the English word logical from that. In other words, compute those. Uh, press the save button on those for sure. Keep those in your hard drive. Keep those in your record. Don't lose those. Those are your meditative focus points. And focus on them and remember them when you face great stresses. So think about these things and keep on doing these things uh, that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Because, you know, Epaphroditus has told him a lot about Paul and what he's been doing and what he's been up to. Uh, the word for do there is praxis in Greek. By the way, that comes into English. Uh, in English uh, educational theory, they talk about praxis, which means to put into practice literally using the, the English word that way, put into practice what you're learning. So put into practice what you're focusing on in this meditation tradition. So put them into practice, and once again, he brings up peace. And the God of peace uh, will be with you. And now the next paragraph. I rejoice. There comes the word uh, rejoice again. He's going to use the word three times in this paragraph. In this uh, chapter, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, and now at last that you revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. 
Uh, what he's referring to there is the two years that he was incognito in the prison at Caesarea in Jerusalem. No one could get through to him. No one could send anybody to help him out or to see how he was doing. Even the beloved physician Luke was not there with him for that. So they had no opportunity. And then when they found out that he was sent to Rome and was in the Roman prison, they sent immediately their young missionary to help him out. So that's what he's referring to there. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity to show it. Then comes a great set of sentences. In fact, one of the most famous lines in all of Paul's writings is about to confront you that many people call their favorite verse. I had a man that I talked to not long ago who has cancer, and I said, is there a verse that means a great deal to you? And he says, yes, there's this verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's the verse you're about to see. Now watch him bring that verse in front of you. He said, uh, not that I am referring to being in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I have to do a word study with you on content. It's one of the sanity words or the mental health words of the Greek vocabulary. It is literally the word autokers. It's made up of two words, auto, which means I, myself, and then uh, auto mixed with uh, a ko, a ko, and a ko means enough. I enough, and this interesting little word is used to refer to a person who is able to cope with all kinds of things that are coming toward him in waves. When you can cope with things that are coming in waves, they would say of you that you are that you have this autocracy. You're autocracy. You are. Uh, it's kind of a, the. You're able to handle it. You can handle whatever is coming toward you. And we call this coping skill sanity. It's the ability to, to tell what's true, what's false, and to handle what's coming toward you. And to be able to cope with it and to, to manage it without paranoia, without panic, and without runaway fear. And so that's the word that he uses, artakis. The, here the RSV decides to translate it content, which is rather a weak translation. But there it is. I am content. I have, in other words, I'm able to handle whatever is coming toward me. And that, now you can see that's exactly what he means by the what follows. So I know, uh, I'm learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little. I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret. Uh, what's that secret? We'll look at that in a minute. Of being well-fed and of going hungry. Of having plenty and of being in need. And now comes the famous verse. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. By the way, the word do there, or can do, is a very powerful verb. It's not a weak verb, just simply an intransitive verb. It's a word that should probably be translated, I can take in stride. It's that strong do. I can take in stride whatever's coming my way because of Christ, him. The him is referring to the Lord at the beginning of the passage because of him who strengthens me. Many people have written that verse down as a favorite verse. Uh, maybe you should too. It's a tremendous verse. I can take in stride everything that comes my way. Then he goes on, you Philippians indeed know 
Then in the earth, oh, but notice the next sentence. In any case, it was kind of you to share in my distress. By the way, now he uses a really harsh word. The word for distress, flixus, we get the word affliction from that word, is the strongest of all the affliction words in Greek. It means sometimes translated tribulation or distress or pressure. Uh, you shared my pressure. Flixus, you shared that. And because he had that when he was in the prison imprisonment in Rome. You Philippians indeed know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, that's their province, the province of Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. That is amazing to me. I mean, Paul had been a pastor in, in uh, Corinth and in a very wealthy city and a wealthy church and in Ephesus. And yet this little poor church, probably the poorest church Paul ever was at, is the one that kept sending him letters and sending him gifts and stuff uh, to follow his ministry. And then they sent the young missionary to uh, Rome to watch out for him. So you, and like no other church, have shared in giving to me. Uh, for even when I was in Thessalonica, that's the capital of Macedonia, you sent me help for my needs more than once. Not that I seek the gift. Now watch his thank you to them. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that accumulates to your account. And then comes his thank you note. Uh, I don't know if you've received thank you notes from a missionary that you support, or maybe you're a, you send a thank you note to people who give support to a mission project in the church. Uh, notice you're going to get a thank you note from this missionary and there's no return envelope in it. You ever get a thank you note with no return envelope for your next donation? With, or suggestion to how to use PayPal to give your next donation? Not, you're going to get it now. Listen to this. I'm amazed at this. I have been paid in full. He's thanking them now. And I have more than enough. I've never uh, read a missionary letter that said that. I've never seen a church ever say we have more than we need. Uh, I am fully satisfied. I have more than enough. I'm fully satisfied now that I've received from Epaphroditus. Notice how he honors that young man. The gifts you sent, a fragrant offering. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will fully supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus to our God and Father. Be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's technically the end of the letter, except we know from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians that he always takes a pen and writes his own personal greeting at the end because he dictates his letter to an ammunicist so that it could be written in very small Greek with uh, no separation between words. But then, because his eyesight is bad, he takes the pen and writes, like he says to the Galatians, at the end of Galatians, he says, see with what large letters I write this greeting with my own hand. So believe me, if we ever found an original autograph uh, manuscript of St. Paul's, think what that would be worth at Christie's in New York. Uh, that would be the most valuable manuscript you ever found. But we haven't found one. But he takes the pen in his own hand now and writes, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The friends who are with me, Paul had an amazing ability to make friends. The friends who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those in Caesar's household. <laughs> How do you like that? Those are guards. He has won the guards right underneath Nero's uh, nose. He did that right and left everywhere. He's calling them saints. 
And now they're greeting the people in Philippi. They greet you too. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I want to reflect for just a few minutes now on the secret of St. Paul. What did he discover? What is it that kept him unflappable? What is it that keeps him sane in the midst of the stresses of the first century world? Maybe we'll get some hints with things that'll keep you sane and me sane, that'll help us to keep us on an even keel, that will keep us uh, uh, moderate and to keep us uh, so that our minds and our hearts are encouraged. All right, number one, the very opening line is the clue. He starts out, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let everyone know your calmness, your unflappability. The Lord is nearby. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, because you are close to the Lord. He doesn't say that. Because you may or may not be close to the Lord. That is a nice truth, and it's wonderful. In fact, when you pray, that's what you're doing when you're praying, is bringing yourself close to the Lord. But that's not the way he begins. He begins, the Lord is near you. Whether you're strong or whether you're weak, he's the one that's alongside. Do you know that our, last week I preached on prayer? I said prayer for such a windy time or windy place. And I started by making the point that Jesus makes. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if, whenever you pray, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into the room by yourself, into your private room, and speak to your Father. Your Father can see you, and your Father can hear you, and he knows you before you speak. Notice he doesn't say, go in the room, confess your sins, and then pray. You don't have to confess your sins to pray to God. You will, believe me, when you start praying to God. But you don't have, that isn't a requirement. It's just pour out your heart. He is near you before you're near him. Pascal put it this way. God loved us before we were born. Do you believe that? Before you were born, he loved you. He came near you before you were born. He found you before you found him. Our Lord preserves this in the parable of the prodigal son. The young prodigal's on his way home, and the father saw him and ran and greeted him before the boy got there. And then the father goes out at night to an angry elder brother and finds him in the dark. The father finds the boy, not the boy finds the father. He finds us. He's first. And that is the reason Paul can keep his sanity. That's the reason Paul can know that the Lord strengthens me. The Lord is there first. If you're on Aslan's back, what are you afraid of? Aslan was there first. He's there first. So that's the way it starts. The Lord is nearby. Then he invites us to pray. I think prayer is a terribly important thing. That's why I wanted to speak on it last week. Prayer is something Jesus taught us. It's a prayer for all seasons that Jesus gave us. And we are to pray. And notice how this prayer in Philippians is a kind of all seasons prayer. Pray with intercession. Pray with thanksgiving. Pray by asking and pray. Bring yourself to the Lord. And the peace of God will guard you. So prayer is another reason that Paul keeps his mind clear. His mind is cleared by praying. Praying is a very good intellectual exercise. It helps to keep your mind cleared when you're praying for people. And then three, he focuses on the greatest truths in every windy place. 
This amazing paragraph on meditation, I think, is a winner. You should write it down and put it in your own. If you want to have a mantra, have that as your mantra. Whatever is true, whatever is just, whatever is good, whatever is in God's grace, focus on that. In the midst of all the terrifying things you're facing, focus on those. That keeps your mind clear. And then the sanity word appears when he says, and when things come your way, and when these waves start waving, coming toward you, ride with them, handle them, cope with them, take them, do something with them. By the way, Paul did that. Paul knew how to use his advantages to his benefit, and his advantages were good. One, he was very bright. Two, he came from a wealthy family. That helped him on one very important occasion. And three, he was a Roman citizen by birth. That helped him. He uses those advantages to his own, to the benefit of the gospel. And also he's able to make friends. A wonderful ability to make friends. And he's linguistically very talented in being able to use other languages. All those things were advantages. He uses them. What about disadvantages? Well, when Paul was in Ephesus, he wanted to teach. And he was there for two and a half years teaching in Ephesus, that great city. And he tried to rent a a room, a hall. And we know from the the book of Acts that he did rent the Tyrannius Hall. Believe me, I've been to Ephesus four times. And the archaeologists are all trying to find Tyrannius Hall. They would love it if they could find Tyrannius Hall. The hall that Paul rented. He was there two and a half years. But guess what? Tyrannius Hall was a popular hall, and it was used at night for oratories and used at night for a theater, and in the morning was used for serious lectures by wealthy people. And the only time he could rent it, we're told, was between 2 in the afternoon and 4 in the afternoon. That would be the dead hour. Anybody want to deliberately take a class at the University of Washington between 2 and 4? Uh, and if you lived in a sunny climate with no air conditioning, would you ever want to take a class between 2 and 4? No! And yet Paul could rent Tyrannius Hall between 2 and 4. And that's when nobody wants to come to church. Nobody wants to come to a lecture on Paul when he's going to teach about the gospel. But guess who can come between 2 and 5? Slaves. Slaves have to work in their master's house at night. And they have to work in the morning to open up the house and get breakfast ready for everybody. But in the afternoon, everyone gets a siesta in the Mediterranean world. It's just a siesta tradition. And the slaves get time off. And the slaves can come and hear Paul. And you know something interesting about the slaves in Ephesus? We know a lot about them. Most of the slaves in Ephesus were slaves that were caught by pirates on ships. That means they were well-educated. Then they were, they were captured, then sold into slavery. And then they ended up slaves in Ephesus. And they were the teachers of the youth of Ephesus. You read Will Grant, Will Grant and Will Durant, all the people on the age of Greece, the teachers of the youth were slaves. Very intelligent slaves. And St. Paul had a chance to talk to slaves and he won them. He was very successful in relating to these young intellectuals and they're the future of the church, believe me, not their owners. And so Paul, had that disadvantage of not having a time that he could rent the hall, and he, so he goes with the time he can rent it, and it works to his advantage. 
Pascal has a great quote that I loved. In fact, I carved it on driftwood. Do great things as though they were small because of Jesus Christ. In other words, don't be intimidated by great things. Do them as if they were small because Jesus Christ is greater. And then do small things as though they were great because of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ can take small things and make them great. Small things can become great. Work with what you've got, and that's how you keep your sanity. And that's how you make yourself really effective. And Paul believed it and did it. Then five, he stays close to his friends, and they stay close to him. We see all these tributes to it here. His tribute to young Epaphroditus, his tribute to the church, the church taking care of him, watching out for him, Paul watching out for them. And that amazing ability of Paul to make friends, to be a friend, to watch the back of other people uh, is one of the reasons Paul is able to survive. It's one of the reasons he's able to stay, uh, in a sense, stay uh, moderate and stay on track. In fact, those friends often helped Paul when, when he was making a, ma- a major mistake. In, in Ephesus, a riot broke out on one occasion, and this huge uh, arena, it's still there to this day, can see, see 23,000 people. And they were in the arena, and they were shouting, Great is Artemis, goddess of the Ephesians, because they were outraged at, at, uh, at the, the spread of the gospel in that city. And St. Paul said, I want to go and address the crowd. And his friends, and one of whom was the treasurer of the city, said, no, if you go in front of the crowd, they'll see you're Jewish, and then they'll go into a rage because there was a lot of anti-Semitism in the Roman world. Then they'll riot. And if they riot, the Romans will send their army here and will take away our freedom. So don't you do it. And so Paul was pulled back. His friends, that's the value of the church. The church become friends who can counsel you and keep you from doing crazy things and doing foolish things. I had a lady who told me that her husband was an accountant and uh, he had predicted nine of the last three recessions. And, uh, and I said, well, he was a, an accountant, but he wasn't a very good uh, pundit, was he? And she said, no, I had to correct him on that. I mean... Uh, uh, we only had three recessions, but he predicted mine. So uh, he's not such a good accountant. So she kind of had to play the role of, of hemming him in from giving financial advice because he just wasn't that good at financial advice. So Paul had friends that played that role. Paul played that role too. And then finally, he enjoyed living. Joy is the word that appears in throughout the book of Philippians. It appears three times in this chapter. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. I rejoice that I'm with you guys and that you guys sent your friends to help me. And joy is a big thing. And if you notice, the last words of this text are sheer joy. Paul is happy. Uh, people think that I can't preach a sermon without mentioning C.S. Lewis. Well, I can. I just hinted at him today. I didn't really quote him at all. Uh, and I'm not going to mention Lewis now. I'm not going to quote from him. But I am going to quote from G.K. Chesterton, who uh, was Lewis's hero. <laughs> and uh, in 1909, G.K. Chesterton, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, wrote a book called uh, Orthodoxy. It's a book that tells about how he became a believer. And we know from Surprised by Joy that when Lewis was first wounded in World War I and was put into a French tent hospital, he read a book. He said, I read a book by G.K. Chesterton, and though I don't agree with him because he is a Christian and I'm an atheist, but I have to explain, he took immediate captivity of me. 
And that was G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy. And that became a big part in bringing Lewis toward Christian faith. But listen to what he wrote. In this book, he's making the case for how he became a Christian. And at the end of it, he says this. The mass of men and women have been forced to be happy about little things, but sad about the big ones. Nevertheless, I offer my last dogma defiantly. It is not native to man or woman to be so. Man, woman is more himself. Man is more manlike when joy is the fundamental thing in him and grief the superficial. Melancholy should be an innocent interlude, a tender and fugitive frame of mind. Praise should be the permanent pulsation of the soul. And now listen to this one, folks. Pessimism is at best an emotional half holiday. Don't make it a whole holiday. Don't give a whole weekend to pessimism. It'll do you in, believe me. Don't give a week to pessimism. Give it one day. One day to be pessimistic. And then you better start pondering some true things. Or you go down. Listen to Chesterton. Pessimism is at best an emotional half holiday. Joy is the uproarious labor by which all things live. And that's how, that's how Paul kept his perspective. Heavenly Father, thank you for that. Thank you that he uh, did more than tell the Philippians not to be worried. He charted out a way to stay sane, to stay calm, to stay genuine and rightly motivated even when times are stressful or when they're good. Thank you, Lord, for what he modeled and how that has been an inspiration to men and women down through the years and still is to us today. Now bless us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.